Welcome to A Certain Age, a show for women who are unafraid to age out loud. You've no doubt seen the news headlines about jobs and women in the workforce. What's being called the Great Resignation is here. The numbers are astonishing. People, and women in particular, are leaving the workforce in droves, pushed out by the pandemic and an inflexible and entrenched work structure that is failing their needs. Work is not working for too many people. My guest today is a woman who is committed to making work work for all. Author, speaker, and diversity and inclusion advocate, Deepa Prashathaman spent more than 20 years at consulting firm giant Deloitte and was, in her own words, a first, an Indian-American woman and one of the youngest people to make partner in Deloitte's history. She's a women in public policy program leader in practice at the Harvard Kennedy School and is the author of The First, The Few, The Only, How Women of Color Redefine Power in Corporate America. She joins me today to share ideas from her book and ideas for building a more inclusive workplace and beyond. Welcome, Deepa. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, Deepa, I'm th- thank you for being a yes. I'm, I'm really excited. I got to watch one of your TED Talks last night in preparation. And I want to start by asking you about something I heard you say. You called yourself a corporate refugee. I would yes. love to. I would love to. That like really caught my ear. I want to hear more about that and ask you if that's what drove you to write your book. Yeah, absolutely. So I have to give credit to my business partner, who was my coach. So Ra Goddess, who did the TED Talk, the official TED Talk, where we were on the TED Women stage. And by the way, I have to tell you, we had 12 days to prepare for that. So that's maybe a, a different question. It <laughs> was a fascinating experience. Um, but Ra, early on um, in my work with her, she calls she calls herself a corporate refugee. So she left 20 years uh, prior to me leaving, um, you know, her engineering role. And she had only been in corporate for a year or two. And she kind of left for a variety of reasons and, and calls her work really helping others. So that term, when she first said it to me, really stuck with me because I, I do think there's a sense of shell shock sometimes. I do think there's a sense of... Um, really redefining yourself, especially if you've been in a structure or, or a company for a very long time. And I spent over 20 years, 21 years at Deloitte. And so it just felt like a really big change to me. It really, it was my identity. It was my whole life. And so when, when, you know, she used that term, I told her I was going to adopt it and use it as well, because <laughs> I do think it's relevant. And I do think it speaks to, to how you feel like you're leaving something behind in some ways, right? I, I completely appreciate what the, what the word means. And so I'm not trying to co-opt, you know, the, 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 or, or downplay the, um, significance of of what it means to be a refugee, but at the same time, it is a very different mentality when you leave when you leave a company or a corporation after that long. So it did feel right. It did feel like a, a good way to describe what was happening. Um, yeah, I think you know I talk a little bit in the book about the fact that I wrote and rewrote what I call my work obituary for almost three years before I left. And I also should say, I only left a year and a half ago. So I'm a very recent <laughs> transplant or, or uh, refugee in a lot of ways. And so um, I, I would I call it the, the work obituary because I wrote and rewrote because it really did feel like part of me was dying. It was a very hard thing to leave behind. I'd given up so much to get to the seat. And yet I felt so called to do work outside of the space. I was burnt out. I was sick. There were a lot of things we can get into sure. that caused me to leave. But I do think that that... Um, I was so tied to that identity at, at that point in my life. And it's so it's so different now. It's fascinating. It, uh, it must have been such a, a hard transition. I want to explore a little bit about what the, the year and a half since you've left ha- has meant for you. But your, your book really talks about the challenges that you experience and that other women of color experience when they are in corporate life. You, you write that the structure of corporate America was not built for us or by us. 
Uh, what does that mean uh, for women of, of color trying to navigate their careers or for women in general uh, in, in the corp- in corporate America? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, the structure was candidly wasn't made by us, right? It wasn't made for us. So we weren't there when it was originally designed is my point. I also think, you know, and this is commonly written about the fact that the structure was made for um, a two, two person household where one person usually stayed at home and that was usually the wife. Um, and that model is what a lot of corporate American, a lot of companies are based on. And so we haven't really evolved that thinking like the hours, the way we work, how we work. And we're seeing that with COVID over the last few years, you know, so many moms are leaving. The structure itself wasn't designed. And I like to say, for women of color, it wasn't made by us. It wasn't made for us. And frankly, sometimes it doesn't even want us to succeed. I think that's the third part to it. And part of what I'm trying to bring light to is that um, there's work that we can do as women of color. There's work that we can do as women, but there's also structural impediments. There's also something about the structure itself that we've never had permission to talk about before. I feel like, I feel like it's always been this message of just work harder. You know, just if you, if you keep your head down, if you do good work, you know, within reason, you'll get recognized and, and rewarded. And what I'm trying to really make sure we talk about is that it's not a meritocracy. The system does show up differently for different groups of people. And it is okay to talk about that. Cause if we don't talk about it, we can't fix it. Yeah, absolutely. It has to be called out. I mean, something you just said um, uh, triggered a thought in my mind, which is that you read a lot about um, the gender pay gap. Uh, women are earning, you know, less on average than men. Women of color are learning are earning less on average than 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 women who are white for doing the exact same job. You hear a lot about women should be better negotiators, or that women should be better about dealing with their imposter syndrome. But when I read those things, I think that they're all true, but it also really irritates me because the, right. the, the structural people, you know, the system knows they're paying you less. Yes. Why is it our job to be better negotiators? Why can't it be their job to look at what they're paying white men, what they're paying white women, what they're paying women of color for doing the same job because they know that they are shortchanging you. And so the onus should not always be on us to, you know, we have to call them out, but I think the system needs to be better. So what would you like to see change in corporate America? I mean, I know your book touches on this and it's a really broad topic and we could probably take, you know, we could talk, you know, till next, you know, Tuesday and not get to everything that needs to change. But what would be, what are some of the big ideas you've surfaced in your book? Yeah. And so, so maybe I'll, I'll use the pay example because it's a great one. I was talking about it yesterday with somebody or negotiations when you're up for a new job. I mean, I think it's a great example because yes, we put a lot of onus on the women should ask for more, um, but we don't talk about the structure. And I actually think the work is in both parts, right? So my book is really about what can women of color do to really redefine success, redefine power, redefine what is important to them. Because what I found is so many women of color were striving to rise in these structures they would get to the seat thinking like, once I get to the power seat, then I can do it my own way. And that actually rarely happens. Once you get to the seat, it's even harder. And so there's a little bit of a message of really paying attention to what's important to you and make sure you flex on that as you rise. But if we come back to the pay example, um, you know, it's hard to speak up for what you want. At the same time, I also think that the system itself um, needs to adjust and reflect it. We were having this larger conversation about the fact that I, you know, I, I don't understand why we don't share pay information and why is there such shame in how much you make? And one of the women I was coaching yesterday said to me, well, I'm afraid to ask her how much I want, but I'm also afraid to tell one of my peers, because what if I'm making less than her? And I said, well, do you feel like that reflects on you? And the more we talked about it, we realized it had no reflection on her. It probably had more reflection on the HR person who she negotiated with, right? And and brought her into the situation. But there's such indoctrination and feelings and 
underlying beliefs around things that are related to the corporate structure that it comes with that we've never really unpacked. And so my book is about asking bigger questions about the things we believe, about how we work and how companies were set up and why we believe those things. And so that's a lot of what it's about. So a question for you, if, if women were to read your book and ask themselves some of these questions, do you think that they would be more inclined to stay or to leave? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> when I started writing and I had this amazing um, agent, Richard Pine, who's, you know, I want to say one of the best, I mean, really, really well known. He's done every single amazing, large business book you could name. Um, and he said that to me early on. He goes, are you, are you trying to tell everybody to leave? And I know that is not the message, but I'm also asking women of color to be more and women candidly. So although I write about women of color, to your point, a lot of what I'm talking about is applicable to others as well. I'm just asking us to be more conscious of the situations that we're finding ourselves in. And what I have found, I, I interviewed over 500 women of color and it's their stories in the book is that a lot of women of color get messages early on about staying, right? About security, about how much our parents have sacrificed to come to this country or you know, how we represent. I, I felt so responsible when I was in my role to not leave because I was the first Indian woman to get to the seat. I felt so responsible if I quit or walked away. What was that you know, saying to others? Why, you know, why did I take that on? Like it was a real process. And so there's a real sense. I think a lot of us, you know, come with this belief we have to stay, even if it's not working for us. And what I'm asking us to, to really be conscious of is that, that messaging, right. And then choose actively choosing to stay if we want to, I'm not encouraging everyone to leave, but I'm also encouraging us to use our voice and to find power in the situations we're in, because what it feels like is happening is death by a million paper cuts, you know, in some cases and larger, you know, indiscretions in some cases, and it's taking its weight on women of color. I mean, women of color, we have a, a statement in the Ted talk and in the research we did where we say, you know, white women are burnt out, but women of color are traumatized. And that feels real in in the, in the women that I interviewed. Yeah, you share that in um, in your book. There are uh, some uh, stories that that I you know got to surface. You interviewed more than five hundred women. It sounds like burnout was a theme. Uh, were there other themes that emerged from the book? Was there anything that surprised you? Yeah, the two most surprising things, um, and it's kind of led to some of the TED Talk and the other work we've done. One was how most of the women of color I met were sick. So, so many of the women of color had these indescribable illnesses, so stomach pain, skin rashes, headaches, fertility issues that seemed to grow over time. And they would go consult doctors and they'd get a lot of feedback of that was very vague, like no, no actionable feedback. And, and, you know, the more they spent time trying to understand it because the symptoms would grow, they did for me, by the way, as well, um, they realized it was, it was stress related. And I, you know, I've done enough work and sp spoken to enough experts in this space to also think it comes back to not being fully seen and heard in structures where you're giving up your whole life in a lot of ways to rise. So that was really surprising how ill and how, how burnt, I mean, not just burnt out, but literally how physically ill the women were. Um, the second I would say is that most of the women thought, you know, I will do small way things to conform, right? I'll, I'll change how I do this, or I'll edit myself here. And once I get to the seat, it will change. I was surprised by how many senior women I spoke to who, once they got to the seat, they were unable to change because there was even more pressure to behave or perform or conform or contort in a certain way. Um, and then the third thing, and this was, you know, this is really what led to the research in the TED Talk, uh, you know, research that, that we mentioned 
is the fact that, you know, I, at the end of my interviews, I would ask the women, is there anything else I didn't ask you? Anything else you want to say? And they would drop their voices, you know, and literally you could see, you know, their shoulders drop because there was shame in what they were about to say. And they said, can we talk about how women don't help each other? And uh, a lot of the time white women don't help us, but we also need to talk about how we don't help each other. And we would, I would end up hearing, you know, four to five stories about how women had really been their biggest, biggest obstacles in the workplace. That is fascinating and and, and upsetting. That is fascinating and upsetting. We have to take a very quick commercial break, but when we come back, I want to talk more about this. Beauties, spring is around the corner and I am all in on making it through winter and feeling my best. For me, self-care is sleep, reading, hot yoga, and hot baths. And thanks to our friends at Kindra, my bath routine has a serious upgrade. You've heard me talk about Kindra's line of estrogen-free menopause essentials, including supplements for hot flashes and better sleep. Kindra has a new product, a soothing bath soak, formulated for a boost of hydration and moisture. It's ideal for sensitive dry skin like mine. Plus, it's made with nourishing botanical extracts and without irritating preservatives, soaps, or fragrances that can disrupt the pH balance of intimate skin. You can try Kindra's Bath Soak or any menopause essential for 20% off using my code KD20 at checkout. Head to OurKindra.com to reinvest in your self-care essentials. Okay, Deepa, we're back. Right before the break, we talked about um, a third surprise that you uh, gleaned from your more than 500 interviews. And, and one of the surprises was that women shared with you, sometimes they felt a lack of support from other women. And they prefer, you know, maybe a lack of support from white women for their needs or lack of support in general. Uh, was that surprising to you? Have you experienced that yourself? Or were you hearing this um, third hand? It was surprising to me at the same time, you know, when I look at who really has supported me in my career, it's usually white male leaders that had supported me. I had assumed it was because there weren't enough, you know, women ahead of me, period. So it was more of a scarcity issue or just kind of who I was working with. But if I really think who's who's kind of lent a hand and made a big difference in my career, it is white men. And I, you know, done some of the research, you know, with Harvard, and then we've done the research with Billie Jean the King Leadership Initiative, which is what what you know the the TED Talk was referring to. Um, I think it comes down to what we're taught, you know, and this is so much of what the book is talking about. Like, really question what you're taught, question what you're indoctrinated with, question what you were taught in school, growing up, the messages you get from the media. And I think a lot of this comes down to because we think there's one seat, because we think, you know, only one of us can succeed from the beginning when you walk in a room and you see another woman or another woman of color, there's a little bit of a, you know, innate competition. And that's wrong. Like, who taught us that there was one seat, right? Who taught us that? that there could only be one of us in the room. And that's part of what we have to change if well, we're going to really see each other's differently. You know, I think it's, it's I, you, you touched on it when you say you use the word scarcity and it's, you know, you say who taught, you ask who taught us this, but I think we were taught by reality. I mean, there weren't seats. And so at one point there was this notion of like only one person could succeed or this sort of tokenism, but that that's only going to change if we commit to changing it. And I, and I, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about for listeners who 
are saying, that's not right. You know, I want to do better. I want to make sure I'm bringing people along and I'm being supportive for people who are maybe younger who are listening, who are you still have the opportunity to sort of shift their leadership style and, and make it be more inclusive. What are some re- specific recommendations that we can take on? Yeah, I think the first is to be really conscious, right, of the fact that that is happening for whatever reason, right? And I I do believe it's coming from a we've been taught that and we believe that, you know, even if it's if it's um not a conscious thought. So we really have to be thoughtful. So in in every sort of interaction going out of our way to do things differently. So one example is I I met with an executive woman and she had just uh she she had just gotten to the VP rank and now she was one of eight um women, you know, at that level. And they believed that only one of them would be promoted to the C-level. As soon as she got that VP title, it felt like she was in competition with the others. And one of the things we talked about was, could she take those women to dinner and have a different conversation of, you know, we can see each other as fighting for that one seat, or we can try and do this differently. And yes, maybe only one of us will get the seat first, but then we can find other ways to help each other rise. And so it was just almost changing the dynamic and the going in situation. I think the other thing that the data that we did, the research we did showed us is that 91% of the white women said they wanted to mentor a woman of color, but only 9% did. And I love the stat because I think there's a difference between the intention that we think we're doing and what actually happens because we get busy and we're doing other things. That's what I found in the research for the book, that it's not that women of color didn't want to help other women of color. Yes, there was some of the sense of scarcity, but we're also just so so buried in all the things we're doing, right? Trying to be perfect, trying to, to um, rise, trying to mentor everybody who comes after us. So many of the women of color I met had so many other jobs outside of the job they were hired to do that we don't talk about because they are first a fewer and only. And so I think it's just being really uh, conscious of, you know, what you want to do versus what you do. Yeah. And, you know, it's, I spend a lot of my time on LinkedIn because my day job is helping uh, senior executives and leaders and teams and organizations be better on the platform, both sharing their professional story and using it as a brand advocacy tool. So I'm on it every single day. And over the last two years, you saw, I saw and read a lot of uh, exhaustion from women and from men, you know, of color who were tired of having to also take on the dual role of like educating people in their organizations about what they were experiencing. And it felt like, you know, they have three jobs. They're surviving a pandemic, doing their day job and helping people be better. (laughs) So I just felt like that notion of exhaustion, I can totally relate to. But the idea of mentoring is so important and of, of committing to bring uh, bring people along. I feel that way in my, in my personal life where I have been somebody who's been in and out of the paid workforce at different times. Uh, I found it very hard to get back in uh, after you know stepping out to care for children. And I um, really feel that it's important to support other returners, you know, because you have to hold the door open for the people that are coming behind you. Um, Absolutely. And, and, and how would you like to see corporate America do a better job of that? Like, what would you like to see? Does this come top down? Is it bottom up? What do you think needs to change? And not everyone listening to the show works in corporate America. A lot of women who are listening to the show are small business owners. I know that you are an entrepreneur, too. After leaving and becoming an author and a speaker, you also run your own business right now. How can we take the lessons that you saw in corporate America and apply them in different work environments? Absolutely. So first of all, I think we need all of the above, right? I I do think change happens um, or not happens, but can happen without senior executive buy-in, right? So if the C-suite's not bought in, it's very hard for a company to change culture. So for me, like you absolutely have to have that. 
But at the same time, just top down is not going to change how we interact with everybody, right, on a daily basis or how, or how we feel on a Zoom call. And that's really where belonging inclusion truly happens. And so it does ha- also have to happen at a manager level. We have to be having conversations we haven't had before. Uh, part of why I wrote this book was to really, in words, explain what it what is different to be a woman of color um, in workspaces. And I think although we say that, we it's very hard to find the details and unpack and the data and to really show what's different and how the weight of that difference shows up for us. And so that was really the intention. I would also say, um, you know, this is about conversations around race, which are hard, they're emotional, they're heart conversations as much as their head conversations. And so part of this is, you know, we're learning how to talk about this outside of work, but we also need to talk about it within work. And so, you know, my answer is it has to be top down and has to be from the middle up. And sure. it also has to be person to person in a very different way, because it's asking for a level of vulnerability. People are so afraid of saying the wrong thing. This is really about giving ourselves permission to try and have conversations and make change that we've never done before truly. And so we have to have grace with ourselves. Um, What I would say to the entrepreneurs is, yeah, I mean, a lot of the women I interviewed had left corporate America, to be honest with you, to start their own businesses. And they did that because the culture didn't work for them. And so there there are stories of entrepreneurs as well. Um, I think, you know, what's really exciting to me is a lot of the women of color I interviewed who did go to start their own company started with the intention of doing it differently. So how do I create a culture that's more inclusive? How do I address some of the gaps we have for women of color? So one of the women I interviewed, Lisa Sun, was a former consulting partner, she got some feedback that she didn't have gravitas and she was really unclear about what that was. And, you know, fast forward five years later, she now has a company called gravitas that does clothing for women of all sizes. And it's a really different way of approaching inclusion. And so um, I just feel like women, you know, the the women I interviewed, and and this is why, like, when you ask me, am I writing a book about everyone leaving? No, I feel like I'm writing a book about inspiration about how you rewrite the narrative because she took something that she found challenging and didn't really know what to do with and turned it into a positive, not just in, you know, in her workspace, but as, as an impact for, you know, society so that everyone felt like they could find clothes that made them feel fabulous. Right. I love that. I love that she took that word that it was sort of denied to her and, and just, you know, took it over and made it yeah. her thing. And co-opted it. Yeah. Co-opted absolutely. it. Honestly, that's a lot of the 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 stories that I hear from the women that come on this show. I've talked to ad executives that have aged out of their industries. So mm-hmm. they built their own companies, their right. own, you know, creative shops that are helping brands communicate to women in midlife who, by the way, have all the purchasing power. So, you know, the women who are who have been denied um the ability to rise or continue their career because of ageism. And have just said, you know, this is total nonsense and left to build their own thing. So what is your take on uh, what is your take on that? I mean, you you left because it sounds like you were burnt out and sick and that you um, got coaching. There was a different way of uh, harnessing your powers and, and feeling great. But um, did was did ageism play any role in, in that decision? Yeah, for me, no, but I can see, you know, I, I, I know a lot of women and we, what, what I've done since I've left uh, Deloitte is to start a company with my, with my partner called um, Information. And our focus is providing brave um, new space to women of color. And so we're really having conversations about a lot of these things. And we have a lot of women that I call legacy women, right? Women who are maybe not in traditional roles and trying to figure out like, how do they give back, but also what's their next chapter. And so I think that that's a real conversation, a real issue. For me, um, I had almost the opposite. I was really young in all the roles I was in. And so it was the opposite challenge. I mean, some of the microaggressions I talk about for myself in the book were 
I would walk in the room and people would question my age on a daily basis, even, you know, even into my, into my forties. And so um, it, it was the opposite problem for me, but I also think that, uh, you know, I think age in general is a challenge for women, regardless if you're younger, if you're older. You're never the, you're never the right age. Pop, pop. You're never the right age. Exactly. You're, you're, you're too young. You're too old. You're yes. too, you're too whatever. You're, you're, it's never the right thing. And so we're, exactly. we're, we're changing that. We're taking that back. I want to shift gears for a minute and ask you about, um, I think it's a chapter in your book, but you, you use the, 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 language, you know, quote that there are delusions that hold us back. And I think I yeah. saw you share this on your Instagram as well. And I was curious about that. I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, this this concept of delusions, holding yourself back and ask you, how do we propel ourselves forward with this knowledge? Yeah. So, you know, I have a chapter that talks about the delusions of corporate America. And then I quickly move to this idea that we have to shed messages that don't serve us or our own delusions. And so with the women of color I met, and again, I think this applies to women in general, there were messages they got, um, you know, from their families, they got early on. So messages, for example, around how to speak up or what was expected of them, what it meant to be a good girl, right? Um, the messages, a lot of the women of color I met, um, you know, in more traditional households really Really struggle with the expectations um, that they have at home, right? That they're going to do all the cooking and all the cleaning themselves, that, that, you know, family comes first in every single instance. And so trying to figure out how to, you know, where does work come in or how do I prioritize amongst those things if they're, if they're both competing in a moment um, in a very different way than I, I heard in some of my conversations with the white women I was meeting with. And so um, I think some of this is really sitting down with the things that you heard early on that really, you know, come up for you when you were up against something. So, you know, I ask women to really think about when you're in a difficult situation, what are the five or six messages that play over and over for you again? Um, for a lot of the women I met, it was not, they were not enough. And so as a result of getting messages early on that they were not enough. They try to outwork and try to outperform. And that's part of what leads to this exhaustion because these women believe there's no room for error as a woman of color, right? That all eyes are on them. And so it's really looking at those messages and figuring out, you know, I'm, I'm an over, over performer and over efforter. Does that serve me? And at the point that my physically started to get sick, I had to ask new questions for myself and realize, is my superpower that I can outwork everyone or is my superpower going to be different? Because that's actually not serving me. So what's your new superpower? Because you did say at the beginning yes. that you you felt like you were working yourself into sickness and that you yes. had to change and and um, sort of reevaluate. What's your new superpower? I think my new superpower is kind of taking obstacles that are thrown my way and turning them into fuel, right? Seeing things and realizing um, they're not going to destroy me. In fact, they're actually being provided for me to pivot. So, you know, my, my very long story in a few words is that I ended up getting really sick. So I moved across the country. I just gotten married, biggest project of my career, you know, huge visibility, but I was working 20 hours a day because it was a divestiture that was really just intense. And I found myself with this growing list of, um, you know, illnesses, uh, three years later, 15 doctors later, it was diagnosed as Lyme disease, but I had to take eight months off. I had to really kind of evaluate what I wanted to do and what I could do. Um, and what I was you know, willing to sacrifice, you know, to, to kind of get ahead and what I wasn't willing to, and was my life, you know, what was I, was I living to work or was I working to live and how did I want to go forward? So those were really big questions for me. Um, and I, in that process really learned that, um, you can, that Lyme, Lyme disease in a lot of ways was a gift because it did make me pivot. It helped me see what was important to me, but I had to really step into that as opposed to seeing it as a, you know, as a negative or a disaster or, you know, something that happened to me. 
you had to take a pause and, and, and yeah. use it. So for women who are listening to this, who are who are thinking, you know, I've been in a job for a while, it doesn't value me, I want something different, or somebody, you know, maybe they've they've been forced out, or maybe they've been out of the work world for a while for a variety of reasons, caring for kids, managing a health challenge as you did, maybe sure. caring for aging parents. You know, you have reinvented, you wrote a book, you've become a speaker, you, you know, you are an advocate, you've launched a new company. What would you say to somebody who who wants to take a new challenge on? What are the things that, you know, a couple of tactical steps that really helped you move from, you know, ideation to like execution? Yeah. So one is um, my biggest advice is to just leap. Like if you keep thinking about something, I love that. If you have an By idea the way, that's so something. simple. That's so simple yeah. and so genius. Just do it. Just leave. Just do it. Just do yeah. it. I mean, because I spent three years turning and in the end, I didn't have any better, better answers than I did in the beginning, <laughs> but I did, you know, I, I, I made myself crazy trying to find them. The other thing I did that I think really was pivotal is as I was really struggling with stay or go for myself in the, in the big role that I had, you know, fought 20 years to get, um, I started meeting with women of color. They initially started as one-on-one dinners, you know, eventually turned into large two, three person, and then eventually into almost 20 person dinners that Ron and I did across the country with 10, 10 groups of women. So I ended up meeting 300 women of color, just in an attempt to figure out like stay or go that that's all I was looking for. Like at a senior level, what are you all doing? Where do I want to go next? Like what does someone do to pivot? That turned into the fodder for the book and also the fodder for the company that we started. And so it wasn't, my path wasn't so intentional, right? I just kind of fell into these conversations. And as I met these 300 women, I saw such patterns in what we were facing. I saw such shared stories that it led me to want to learn more and to read more. All these women were sick, right? As I, as I was as well. So part of my other feedback is talk to people or, or if it's not, if it's not talking, it's writing, like whatever works for you. But I'm like a big, I need to, you know, bounce ideas is off of people. And I think meeting those 300 women and really being thoughtful and and learning from them and listening um, is probably what propelled me and what made things happen so quickly. So just to be super clear, six weeks after I uh, resigned from my job, I had a book deal. We had a company up and running. Like it all happened really quickly because I think I was so ready and had, you know, really uh, been open to what was showing up for me. I think you, you, I love what you just shared. Be open to what's showing up for you. And you don't necessarily need to where you're going. I think a lot of women um, prioritize perfection. You talked earlier about, you know, we are raised to be good girls. There's a certain path. And we feel like we need to get the degrees or get the promotions or get the titles in order to, you know, get to where we want to go. But sometimes just having the conversations like you did, being open to suggestion, being open to, possibility allows you to create something that you didn't envision if you were like busy sticking to your plan. So I, I, I love that you shared that story. I, I want to ask you a, a question. I've been asking this to um, some of my recent guests, and I, it's really about the power of asking. You talked a little bit earlier about negotiation, but I have been spending a little time thinking about my podcast. It's been around for a year and a half now and asking myself, like, how did I get here and where am I taking it and where do I want to go? And I, I've been working with this theory that that you know, as you hit midlife, that I've got just gotten better at asking. You know, I've gotten better at asking people for what I need or maybe what I deserve or what I want. And I've also am better at asking myself to do more and expect more from myself. And I, I would love to hear you talk about this. Do you think that um, your ability to ask more of yourself and ask more of other people in your world has improved as you've as you've aged? I think what's really changed for me is slightly different. It's related, but slightly different. It's more, and it comes back to the the pay 
conversation we had earlier. The, the reason I have found in my own research, and I've done some research on negotiation with a few professors at Harvard, um, is that women are afraid to ask because they're almost afraid to get the answer no, because then somehow it reflects on their worth. And I think what shifted for me, yes, it's asking and all of those things, but it's more if someone says no, and this is so critical to the book itself, it's this idea that you get to define power. I think what's happening is so many of us are putting power outside of ourselves. If someone says yes or no, that's defining for us our worth. And what I'm asking us to do is realize, like, make all the asks you want, right? Within reason, like, because you don't yes. want to set yourself up for failure or seem like you're, you know, you're being unreasonable. But there's also no harm in asking if you're asking in the right sorts of ways. And if you get a no, or if you ask for two extra salary and you get one and a half, like that's still a win. And so it's a little bit of reframing, um, you know, and, and reacting to the response you get. And I think we've just been conditioned as women, as, as women of color, especially if we get the no, or if we get pushback, it's somehow we shouldn't have asked in the first place. And that's not what white men do. And I think we need to kind of get to that point of, you put the ask out there and then it's not on you. It's about them and, and kind of get to that mantra that I love, I love for myself. It's in the book, but that's one of my favorites, right? Like it's, you can only control what you can control. And that's how you kind of, that's how you establish your power or you stand up for your power is um, really being clear. Like everything else is out of your control. And so if you give that power to other people, you're going to feel very powerless powerless in many situations. Yeah, absolutely. And, and having the clarity to understand what it is that you want and that, that, um, you know, even though you are sometimes getting a no, maybe it's just a, you know, one of my friends says it's a no, not yet. You know, mm -hmm. so it, it, no doesn't have to be yes. the end of the line, even though uh, in midlife I've taken on no as a complete sentence. I've gotten better at saying no <laughs> to people about things that, that I want. But um, so interesting. So self-advocacy is, is something that we, we all need to practice more of and, you know, and recognize that, that a no is not the end of the line. Uh, Absolutely. Deepa, our time is beginning to, to end, but I do want to make sure we move into our speed round because there's so much uh, great information that you have and in your book, and I want to give everyone a little bit more of a taste. So we close with a speed round. I ask quick questions, and I, uh, I'd love it if the guests can give me a one or two word answer. Uh, are you up for this? Sure. Let's try it. I will, I will try to keep it to one or two words. <laughs> you, can, you, can, you can use a sentence if you want. I'm not a stickler. Okay. Writing the first, the few, the only was? Therapy. A woman of color who's a corporate leader we should all have on our radar, but who we may not really know about yet. Oh, that's a great question. Um, so Shinda Duckett, I know, I mean, she's out there because she's a CEO, but um, I've, I've just been doing more reading about her and what she's talking about. And I just like how she's telling her story more and bringing her personal voice to the forefront. I actually would say that for a lot of the women in seats right now, like you're just starting, sorry, that's more words than you no, want. No, that's okay. They're, they're, they're talking more about their personal life and their their histories. And I think those are the parts of the interesting story that I want us to gravitate to. It's, it's yes, they're a trailblazer, but also what else are they bringing to the party that we've never really heard before? I follow her on LinkedIn. I'm going to put that in the show notes so other people can follow her as well. Uh, a book or TED talk that influenced my career thinking? Mm, that's a great question. I uh, Maybe I'll say what I am reading right now. And so it's um, Out of Office. If you haven't heard about it, it's about um, working from home and how people thought that was going to solve all of our ills, but it's maybe created different ones. <laughs> I, I totally agree. Okay. Burnout is real. I combat burnout by doing this one thing. 
So I'm not a big meditator, but I have a steam shower. And for whatever reason, I can sit in there and get very calm. And so I try and do that for 10 minutes a day. Ooh, that sounds lovely. Uh, life as an entrepreneur is? Very high highs and some very low lows. <laughs> a roller coaster. Okay, finally, for listeners wanting to be part of creating a more harmonious, you know, just inclusive workplace wherever we work, what is one action you recommend we do to get started? I think my suggestion would be give yourself permission to try, right? Try and have a conversation you don't, you wouldn't normally have, you know. Don't be afraid to ask a question, but just give yourself permission to mess up, right? We're not going to get this perfect, but I think we're so afraid of doing the wrong thing that we're not trying. I love that. And I would say uh, you should buy the first, the few, the only, and read it before you have that conversation because it'll, yes. give, it'll give you the confidence <laughs> to, yes. to have that conversation in a way that, that is going to you know, move, move forward and, and move, the, move the ground forward. Uh, Deepa, thank you so much for your time today. Before we say goodbye, I want to make sure our listeners know how to find you, find the first, the few, and the only. If they work at a workplace and they want to bring you in to talk to their teams or to buy the book to help their organizations and their teams, where can they find you and your work? Absolutely. Everything that I am doing, the book, all the rest of it is all up on my website. So Deepa Peru, D-E-E-P-A-P-U-R-U.com. And I would love to hear from you. This is this is really why I did the work is to, to really bring it to women of color, but also to have the conversations within companies. So thank you. Amazing, Deepa. Thank you. This wraps A Certain Age, a show for women who are aging without apology. Join me next Monday when dentist Dr. Julie Cho shares oral care trends, products, and cosmetic dentistry ideas to keep your smile radiant for the long run. Special thanks to Michael Mancini, who composed and produced our theme music. See you next time, and until then, age boldly, beauties. Beauties.